Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. In recent months and years, US politics has appeared to be very much in a state of crisis. The last president was impeached by Congress and stands accused of inciting an attempted coup in the 6th of January 2021 assault on the Capitol. What's more, in recent devastating acts of judicial review, the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade and its June 30th ruling on West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency severely curtailed the EPA's authority under a provision of the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. But rather than all this pointing to a dysfunctional or even broken politics, what we're witnessing is a political system working exactly as it was designed to. That at least is the position taken by Robert Ovetz in his new book, We the Elites, Why the US Constitution Serves the Few. It's a fantastic, eye-opening book which examines the Constitution for what it is, a rulebook for elites to protect private property and capitalism from democracy. As Robert argues, social movements have misplaced faith in the Constitution as a tool for achieving justice when it actually impedes social change through the many roadblocks and obstacles that we call checks and balances. This stymies progress on issues like labour rights, poverty, public health and the climate crisis, ultimately propelling the American people and the rest of the world towards destruction. So it's my great pleasure to be joined on the show today by Robert Ovetz to talk about the US Constitution from the historical context in which it was written and what its authors set out to achieve, to the many myths and misconceptions that exist around it, and its legacy today, more than 230 years after its ratification. So, without further ado, here is Robert Ovetz on Radicals and Conversation. We hope you enjoy the show. Thanks very much for joining me today on the podcast. It's really great to be having this conversation about your new book, We the Elites, Why the US Constitution Serves the Few. For listeners, this book is out on, I think it's the 17th of September, isn't it? So uh, coming out very soon. You can pre-order it now from plutobooks.com. And as ever, podcast listeners can get 50% off. You just need to use the coupon podcast at the checkout. So yeah, congratulations on the book. It's really sort of enlightening, particularly as someone based over here in Britain, to learn more about how the US system, political system, you know, doesn't really function uh, the way that many people think that it should. So let's start with some some basics, I guess. One of the words that comes up pretty much from page one is uh, the framers. I know that this was my experience and, and the experience of some of my colleagues, is that we weren't really sure who the, the framers were before you started talking about them in the book. So for our international audience, could you explain who the framers were and maybe what we might know them as by a different term, I guess? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. The framers are a kind of mythical group in American society. So the book is, it is directed towards an American audience, but it also has implications globally because of course the United States is a global hegemon, an imperial power. So whatever happens here ripples throughout the globe. So the framers are the people that wrote the constitution of the ones that were nominated to go to the meeting in Philadelphia, 55 of them showed up and more than a dozen didn't really stick around that much. They were going back and forth. And so these were the folks that showed up in Philadelphia and literally covered the windows and closed the doors and behind a veil of a non-disclosure, 
uh, they wrote the Constitution during that hot summer of 1787. Without exception, uh, these folks were all white men. Uh, they were all uh, very affluent. Some were extremely wealthy. George Washington, who presided over it, was probably the wealthiest man at the time. And I, I can't say country because it was governed under the Articles of Confederation at that time. And there were a few who you could say were the poor rich, but most of the elite class, the ruling class, were present there. Yeah, brilliant. So, I mean, I guess one other description might be the founding fathers, right? I know you don't use that term in the book, but would it be fair to say that you're talking about the same group of people? Yes. So that's that's an interchangeable term. Mm. And to kind of reduce the amount of verbiage, I just shortened it to the framers, which is an interchangeable expression of the same group of people. Mm. You mentioned there 1787, September, I think maybe it was signed. Um, for those of us who are maybe unfamiliar with this period of American history, could you give us some of the historical context in which the framers were creating the US Constitution as we know it? What was America like in 1787 at the tail end of the revolutionary period? In the book, it comes through pretty much straight away that it was a turbulent time, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we tend to think that the framers met in a period of, uh, of quiet and calmness, but the reality was very, very different. There was a lot of political turmoil. There were insurrections by small farmers. In fact, one of the motivating reasons why this meeting in Philadelphia was called, which actually was a, a decade-long project of Alexander Hamilton specifically, uh, was that there had just been an armed uprising of small farmers, most of whom had been Revolutionary War veterans who hadn't been paid and were subject to really extraordinarily high taxes in order to repay the creditors in the state of Massachusetts. And they were led by several people, but it's one of the leaders was Captain Daniel Shays. Uh, so we tend to call it the Shays Rebellion. There were several others uh, similar kinds of rebellions, armed and unarmed, that were extremely confrontational. But there were also slave uprisings and slave resistance that was a carryover from the Revolutionary War period when about a third of the slaves or so ran over to the British side in exchange for being freed from slavery. And of course, there were armed Native Americans uh, who were attempting to form one of several alliances to push back and resist westward colonialism and genocidal extermination. And let's not forget, of course, the European powers. Mm. Uh, the British controlled the Atlantic Hemisphere. Spain and France were still on the hemisphere, still had territory. And what we call America was not a single country, as I mentioned a moment ago. It was a confederation of the states overseen by Congress. And so the Congress and all the states were still deeply indebted to the Dutch and the Spanish and the French. So this was a young, quote unquote, country that was in deep turmoil. The ruling class was challenged from below from these three directions. And they were also threatened from without. They did not have control over their part of the continent. Mm. 
Yeah, it's really interesting when you say that kind of at this point in history, the elite was not in a position of power. It it feels sort of almost counterintuitive, but um, this is not a, I guess, a monolithic group of people with precisely the same sort of positions or interests, but they clearly did have common interests. So the framers, what were they setting about to achieve then with the constitution in response to the conditions they found themselves in? Yeah, I, th- I think you said it quite well, that the framers weren't a unified class, and, and that was one of the predicaments that they faced, because under the Articles, each state had its own laws, its own economic policies, even their own currencies, their own legislatures. Essentially, when they made law, it was pretty much the law of the state. There was no judicial review, like we take for granted today, where the Supreme Court or other federal courts can strike down a state law as unconstitutional. Uh, The Congress was weak. It really couldn't collect any taxes. Uh, There were all kinds of disputes between the states. And in some states, they were incredibly democratic, much more democratic than even today. It was very common that everyday people would form themselves into, you could say, a kind of proto-political party and take over the state legislature and then pass what I call economic democracy laws. Uh, such as debt relief and paper money laws and and price controls even. And so the framers had a hard time really kind of seeing across their own particular competing interests. A significant share of the ruling class at the time were slave owners. Most slaves were in what we call the southern states, uh, but every state had slaves. And so they were more plantation agricultural based whereas the kind of burgeoning emerging industrial sector, it's hard to say it was industrial at the time, but small cottage factories, skilled workers, which were called mechanics at the time that become kind of petty you know, merchants, they were more likely to be located uh, in the northern and mid-Atlantic states. So they all had different interests. They also uh, found themselves in conflict over different internal tariff laws that they had. They imposed tariffs on the imports of goods from one state to the other. And some states like New York and Virginia were actually able to pay off a lot of their Revolutionary War debt using these different kinds of policies. And so it was difficult to actually get those elites to meet together. There had been two previous meetings in the previous year or so before the 1787 Philadelphia Convention, where a group of elites had called for a meeting around internal trade policies, and really very few people showed up to that one. And that was hosted by President Washington. And then they called another meeting in Annapolis, and very few people showed up to that, and they kind of waited for a while. And eventually, they called the meeting to a close, and they called for another meeting in Philadelphia. And after a long time, they actually got Congress to approve that meeting with limits on it. And so the, the short of it is, when they show up in Philadelphia, you've got these competing sectors among the elites who are all kind of suspicious of each other. And one of the most extraordinary things that comes out of those debates, and I record a lot of this in the book, is that folks like Madison and Hamilton, and to a lesser degree, uh, Washington, and then Governor Morris and Robert Morris of no relation, they kind of take the lead along with John Jay in saying, look folks, you might be based on slavery, we might be based on foreign trade and the production of skilled goods, but our interests are really similar. Uh, We face these different threats and problems 
And if we can find a solution, we can protect all of our interests. And so they create essentially a ruling class compromise at the convention, and, and that's written down as the Constitution. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of familiar names coming up in this sort of roll call. you got, yeah, as you say, Washington, Madison. Hamilton's an interesting one because, again, you know, over here uh, in Britain, most people are only really know of Hamilton because of the, you know, the Lin-Manuel Miranda super smash hit play. What would you have to say about how he's characterized in that? Because I think it's fair to say in the book he doesn't come through as quite this, uh, you know, progressive hero as maybe he does in the play. Could you say a bit more about Hamilton's politics and what he was trying to achieve through the Constitution? Yeah, so I I love the play. I both love and hate it. I've seen it yeah. twice. <laughs> um, I, I love the, the remix album, but the play is problematic in many ways. It mythologizes him. It makes him look like he was a progressive force against slavery and, mm. you know, particularly that scene where he puts down Thomas Jefferson for being a slave owner. Well, Hamilton actually helped design these concessions with slavery, the Three-Fifths Compromise and so forth. He was a big part of that. He wasn't the most influential framer. Mm. And part of the reason was he was uh, outnumbered. Uh, each state's delegation uh, got one vote. And the other two members uh, were opposed to the Constitution and eventually left early and came out against it as anti-federalists. Uh, those were folks who were attempting to block the ratification of the Constitution. And so Hamilton often couldn't vote because his delegation, he was only one-third of the vote, and so there was no way for him to vote, which is why they sign their names at the end and they don't actually say what the total vote was in the Constitution. A lot of people don't realize that, and that was because of this problem that Hamilton faced. Hamilton also was really unpopular in many ways at the convention. In his hurry to try to build a single national economy, which was his lifelong project, which he eventually achieves, and I'll come to that in a moment, he puts out one of the plans at the very beginning of the meeting. So at the very beginning, they're tasked by Congress with just fixing the Articles of Confederation, but literally within a couple of days, they throw it out entirely and say, we're just going to start over again. And so there are these different competing plans we know as at the Virginia plan, the New Jersey plan, and then a lot of people don't realize Hamilton had his own plan. And he literally spoke for about eight hours laying out his plan. And his plan essentially was to have a kind of elected king for life. He was a big admirer of the British system. Hmm. He didn't like the parliament, though, so he thought that a king with more power would be able to check the legislature. He didn't trust the average person to have any say and rule. He wanted to have a veto, and he wanted the courts to have judicial review. So he eventually gets a lot of what he wants. But his plan is really unpopular because he literally calls for a king. And they're like, no, 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 if we say king, this constitution will never be ratified. So, you know, his plan gets poo-pooed and um, he gets very little support for that. But he sticks around and he has some influence. But really where his greatest uh, influence comes is in using the constitution. He is Washington's Secretary of the Treasury. In fact, he's appointed before the Secretary of State and of Defense are appointed. Hmm. Um, that shows how important the economic interests of the elite were. So when Washington takes office, he gets Hamilton appointed. Hamilton was his 
attache, if you will, when he was general running the Revolutionary War armies as his Secretary of Treasury. And then Hamilton immediately goes to work using the powers of the Constitution to create a single national capitalist economy that he says will unite all the different competing interests of the ruling elite. So he's not the person that the play tells us he is. He wasn't opposed to slavery in an active way. He personally didn't like slavery, but he actually helped worsen and deepen the problem of slavery. He made it more powerful because of his role, particularly in setting up this national uh, economic system that was really financed by the wealth of the slave owners. So he's pretty ingenious. You know, His project for a decade was to get the elites to work together and to create a commercial agreement. And that commercial agreement becomes the Constitution. So he goes to work right away and puts into place essentially the U.S. economic system that still governs the planet. And in many ways, he was the designer of our global economic system today. Mm. No, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, you mentioned the uh, three-fifths clause early on in that answer there. Many people will be familiar with that. But could you just explain what that was and, and what the consequences of it were. Um, yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. So the three-fifths clause, again, is something that you learn in elementary school in the United States. And essentially, it was the concession between the northern, you could say, uh, merchants and industrialists and the southern slaveocracy to keep the slave-dominant states in this new constitutional system. There was a long back and forth negotiations over how they would tax, how they would count the population for representation in the Congress. And eventually they came to this agreement after going back and forth over the proportion, but they agreed ultimately to count all of the slaves as three-fifths of a white person for the purpose of counting the population and then dividing up how many seats each state would get in the House of Representatives, which for European listeners, this is commonly referred to as the lower house. But the House of Representatives designed so that each state gets a certain number of seats based on the population. They don't even have to be citizens or eligible to vote. Then the Senate, every state got two senators. So the three-fifths rule essentially exaggerated the number of seats that states with large numbers of slaves but very few free whites would get in the House of Representatives. We also, many of your listeners may be aware, do not directly elect our president and vice president. We vote for what are called electors. These are picked by the parties of the candidates. And then depending on who wins the most votes in each state, except for Maine and Nebraska, they go off and cast their votes for those two running together, the president and the vice president. This is the complication of our constitutional system. So sorry to get into the weeds here, but the number of electors is based on the number of seats in the House and plus the two representing the Senate. So in the end, nearly all of the presidents before the Civil War were elected from a large slave state. The largest number of those were from Virginia. So the consequence of this three-fifths rule was not only that it allowed slavery to be protected in the Constitution as a form of protected property, which is a big part of my book, but it also gave the slave states disproportionate influence over who would become president, thus having the veto, and thus nominating who would be on the federal courts to protect slavery and property, and then also 
who would control the House of Representatives. And as long as there's an equal number of states with a lot of slaves and very few slaves or no slaves, then they would at least have half the Senate. So all of this comes down to a minority check, what I call a minority check in our Constitution. It means that the minority of the population, a very small minority that had most of the slaves, were able to block anything that the majority wanted to do. They could do it in the House, they could do it in the Senate, and with the president's veto, as well as with the courts, for the reasons I just said. So I'm sorry, that was kind of a long answer <laughs> to the question, but it is a complicated part of our Constitution, which I spend virtually an entire hour on when I teach it, uh, because a lot of people don't understand it. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's worth taking the time over. Yeah, I mean, one thing that'd be good to hammer home, really, because this comes through very forcefully in the book, is the fear and disdain that the framers seem to have for democracy, which seems very counterintuitive. But you cite any number of statements from you know Madison, Hamilton, John Adams and others expressing their sort of fear of democracy and fear of the majority and, you know, call them the people outdoors and which is kind of at odds with the popular perception, I guess, of what the founding fathers or the framers were about. Could you say a bit more about their position on questions of economic and political democracy and maybe why they were so fearful of it based on what had been going on in the States uh, at the time? Yes. One of the biggest childhood myths that you will learn when you grow up in the United States is that our constitution was established for quote unquote, we the people, which is where we get the title of my book from, so that we could self-govern, that we could democratically govern ourselves, and that the constitution was established by these forward-thinking, progressive men of the time who wanted to establish a system of democratic self-rule to realize the principles of the Declaration of Independence. The reality is that when you look at what these men actually believed, when you look at their memoirs, when you look at their letters, when you read the debates, the what few transcripts we have from the convention, when you read the transcripts of the state ratifying conventions, and when you read the Federalist Papers and the other archival documents, is that nothing could be further from the truth. These men wanted to establish a strong national government that could help set up and protect a strong national capitalist economy. Mm. And the best way they could do that was to keep the rabble out of having any say. And like you said, they used all kinds of derogatory terms. They talked about the common people being essentially the unwashed people out of doors, which was a common term which we've forgotten. And essentially, they're talking about the people who worked with their hands, the people who got dirty in the field, because it was primarily an agricultural economy. And they thought these people should stay outdoors. <laughs> they shouldn't have a role inside. Uh, they referred to them as the mob, as anarchy. Uh, some friends of some of the framers wrote a several hundred page long epic poem called Anarchia, which is a long diatribe against the common person. They thought that if the everyday person ruled, like in ancient Greece, in Athens, uh, which had the origins of what we call Western democracy, that it would result in a tyranny of the majority. John Adams said it would result in terror. Hamilton thought it would result in also a, a kind of tyranny and would be tumultuous. And Madison as well in Washington and Jay and the Morrises all denounced 
the common people ruling. And the reason is they have a direct experience with that. As I mentioned earlier, in some of the states, they were pretty democratic in some ways. And it was relatively easy for those who had a little bit of property, because there were property requirements to vote and run for office, to get into the state legislature. And because only a few of the legislatures had a veto and there was no judicial review, and some of them were also uh, unitary legislatures. Uh, they only had one house. So once a bill passed the one house, it was the law. Hmm. And so they could change the law quite quickly. And they did all kinds of things like control prices and stop debt repayment and issue paper money um, and then make it a legal tender so they could pay off their debts with this paper money. The elites were up in arms. And all of these policies they saw as coming from below, coming from essentially the working class of the time, and they wanted to put a stop to it. And the best way that they could make the case to the other elites who faced different aspects of this problem, these threats to their property, was, look, the reason why we have these threats to our property is because we're letting too many of these people out of doors have political power. We gotta get their hands off of the levers of power. And we don't really learn this. Here's the secret, though. Most political scientists, most historians in the United States, except the few like David McCullough, who just passed away the other day, uh, the great-grandfather of pop American history, will tell you that the framers weren't a big fan of democracy. They liked ancient Rome, where the ruling families ruled, and they set up essentially a, an executive with supremacy powers. They didn't like ancient Athens. This is widely known, widely accepted in the disciplines, but the American population has been denied this information. Hmm. I mean, one thing that comes through quite clearly is that there's this idea of the Constitution being like a living document or a living Constitution, but that this seems to be quite a misconception because it's actually intended to stymie change and introduce a kind of political stasis, right? Um, to backtrack a little bit, it'd be interesting to hear, given what you were saying firstly about how the states were in many respects, or some respects, more democratic, and that the elites were relatively disempowered, how did the constitution get ratified, essentially, given that it was beyond the purview of what the framers came together to discuss, you know, what Congress had permitted, I suppose, which was a revision of some of these articles of the Confederation. So how did it get ratified firstly? And then, yes, could you say a little bit more about the ways in which it is a document designed to prohibit change rather than actually evolve with the times, which is maybe the conception of it that people have, the misconception? Yes, that's, that's another one of the founding myths that Ray Raphael to use his term from his amazing lifetime of work on, on the founders and the Constitution and the American Revolution. One of the myths we learn is that the Constitution is designed to be adaptable, to be changeable, to meet the needs of the present generation. Again, this is not supported by facts and by the evidence. Because the framers didn't trust the average people, they knew that demography is destiny. And Madison writes about this in Federalist Paper Number 10, that ultimately the population is going to grow, you're going to have more people in each district, so we have to keep the districts big so that it dilutes the influence of any one group, particularly the everyday people, the working class. And we have to be able to prevent them from getting power and then changing the Constitution. So how do they do this? Well, 
in Article 5, they establish really complex rules for amending the Constitution and just to spare you the intricate details of this. We are almost never able to amend the Constitution. We've never called a constitutional convention. In fact, they called a constitutional convention when they weren't even authorized to do that. Uh, they were only supposed to be proposing changes to the Articles of Confederation, the first Constitution. So out of over 10,000 officially proposed amendments, only 27 have been ratified. So you can do the math. It's, you know, they established our system to be unchangeable. It's very difficult to pass a bill in the United States. It's not like a parliamentary system where, for better or worse, you can more or less pass any bill as long as your government has a majority. And there's exceptions to this, but for the most part, it only has to pass one house. Most uh, constitutional parliamentary democracies don't have wide-ranging judicial review. So once the bill passes, it's the law until you change the law. Not so in the United States. And so the framers designed so many checks and balances, what I call minority checks, in our system that these roadblocks and impediments make it incredibly difficult to change the law or to change a regulation or even to get a court ruling that serves the interests of the majority. And certainly it's impossible to amend the Constitution. So rather than a living, changeable, flexible document, what we got was a document that has virtually been unchanged since the late 18th century, a time when we didn't know that nature was not inexhaustible, when we didn't have flight, we didn't have telephones, we didn't have public education, right? So we still are governed by the rules of a system designed by 55 wealthy men more than two centuries ago. So the Constitution, the answer to your other part of your question, the Constitution wasn't a sure hit. It wasn't a sure thing that it was going to be ratified. As I mentioned a moment ago, they had really struggled to get approval to even meet. And eventually the Congress does pass a bill authorizing this meeting with specific directions, saying that they can only propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. And as I mentioned, they threw that out and ignored it. So when they come back months later, at this point, the Congress is really in crisis. A lot of states' representatives are not showing up anymore. They haven't raised enough revenue. The country, quote unquote, is really in default on some of its debts. We have been a debt defaulter. <laughs> uh, and so the Congress hardly passes the proposed constitution out to the states. And uh, as the constitution requires, it has to be approved by nine states to go into effect. But there isn't a direct popular vote. They say that there should, it should be approved by state ratifying conventions. And this is a very clever little shift there because they knew that if it went to the state legislatures, because of the short terms, it's very likely that there would be a turnover in just enough of the state legislatures that the common people would get elected again, their representatives would get elected to the state legislature, and they would vote it down. So they didn't make it subject to the state legislatures. They certainly didn't make it subject to a popular vote. Although, ironically, Thomas Jefferson years later said, you know, we should be able to vote on our Constitution every half generation or so. Mm. And so these state ratifying conventions, it wasn't a sure thing either. They started meeting almost immediately. And because the Constitutional Convention was pretty much done in secret and there was a gag order, the framers and their friends were all communicating. They had all the inside information of what the different parts of the Constitution meant because it's not written in a very clear way. So all of their allies 
already understand how important it is to get this constitution ratified. Those who are questioning it, once it comes out, they don't have a network set up yet. And they're actually censored. They're banned from the so-called Federalist newspapers. The Federalists were those who wanted to ratify the Constitution, and the Anti-Federalists were opposed to it or wanted changes to it before it would be ratified. So those who are opposed to it organize late. They don't have enough information. But after the first few states ratify quickly, suddenly there's a problem. The Anti-Federalists have gotten organized. They're able to vote down the Constitution in several states. And now it's looking like it's touch and go. And in incredible research that was done by a historian in the middle of the 1900s, looking at who voted and who served in those state ratifying conventions, we now know that perhaps as many as 40% of the delegates were opposed to the Constitution. Mm. And so the way that it kind of squeaks by and gets ratified is essentially through arm twisting, outright bribery. Some of the leading anti-federalists are actually quite prominent and wealthy. And one of them had, uh, several of them had been delegates to the convention. Um, In fact, we get our term gerrymandering of rewriting congressional districts to favor one candidate over the other from Representative Elbridge Derry, who was pretty wealthy, but he was opposed to it. There were a couple others who then changed sides. They literally jumped ship during the convention. And it turns out later that they received job offers um, Mm -hmm. or they were convinced, a a few of them were convinced that it was better to ratify and change it later. So the only way that the framers really could succeed in their Federalist allies in getting it ratified was to do that, but also to offer concessions. Some of the states put forward resolutions calling for certain amendments before they would vote to ratify. Pennsylvania, for example, uh, put forward dozens of them. And so what they do is they kind of huddle and they come back and they say, okay, we hear there's a lot of proposals to make changes to the Constitution. We're not going to do that now, but we promise when you ratify it, the first Congress will take up all these proposals We'll go through them and we'll put forward to the first Congress uh, suggestions for amendments. And that's where we get the Bill of Rights. Hmm. Now, there's a little bit of trickery behind this because it eventually convinces enough uh, folks that the Constitution is ratified. Rhode Island doesn't ratify for several more years um, until it's threatened with invasion (laughs) and forcible debt collection. But the first Congress does do this, and the person put in charge is a new representative from the state of Virginia who you probably will recognize, James Madison. And Madison collates all the proposals. He selects a couple handfuls, um, rewrites them to kind of make them weaker than they were originally intended, and gets them passed through the House. And then eventually a number of them are passed by the Senate. And then they go out to the states, and 10 of them are ratified, and that becomes the Bill of Rights. So there's really, already from the beginning, there was a recognition that the Constitution primarily served the elite's property interests. That was really one of the underlying themes of many of the anti-federalist critiques. And so from the beginning, organized resistance to the Constitution actually helps us get the best part of the Constitution, and that's really the Bill of Rights. And most people, when you ask them, what does the Constitution provide us? They say, oh, it gives us our rights. 
But actually, the Constitution, as it was ratified, had virtually no rights for people. And the only reason we get any of those rights, starting in the Bill of Rights, was because people organized and fought back. And primarily, it was the so-called people out of doors who almost tanked the Constitution and were able to extract these concessions to organize resistance. Mm. It'd be good to talk a little bit about the judiciary, the legislative and the executive branches, right? Because uh, I suppose the Constitution uh, is supposed to enshrine this idea of a separation of powers, you know, um, checks and balances on on the different branches of government. But one of the outcomes, and, and George Washington, you mentioned in the book, in his farewell address, he sort of warns about this rapid growth of executive power, the power of the presidency, essentially. You know, that's in the late 18th century. He's talking about this. Um, was the increasing power of the president something that the framers didn't foresee? Was it like an oversight or is it part of the Constitution as as was intended? Yeah. Why is like Congress so weak when it comes to, you know, checking the power of the president? How has the presidential power sort of snowballed over the years? The framers design of the Constitution was informed by this principle we call separation of powers and checks and balances, or like two principles. And their argument was, under the states and under the Congress and the Articles of Confederation, the Congress was the only branch of government in the Articles. The states, for the most part, had unicameral, single-body legislatures, as I mentioned before. Very few had a gubernatorial veto and none of them had judicial review. So they were kind of proto-parliamentary systems. Once a bill passed, that was the law of the state until they changed the law. So the framers drew from the ideas of Montesquieu and implemented this system of separation. It's also known as the Whig theory of government, where you have different branches that are supposed to represent the king, the president, uh, the middle class, the merchant class, uh, that would be the Senate, and then the common people, the working class, the House of Representatives. And the idea was that in order to slow down change, to make sure that the majority couldn't sweep its favorite candidates and party into office and then change the law and threaten property, they separated those powers out. And we see this today, where the most forward-thinking bills will pass the House of Representatives when the Democrats control it. The hundred or so progressive, social democratic, left-leaning members, have they have the largest caucus in the House, so they can get those bills passed. But those bills just die in the Senate, or they get whittled down to nothing, like the bill that just passed is going to pass right now. They just passed the Senate the other day, the supposed climate change bill. Hmm. So what the framers did was they designed the system to slow down change and they gave the ability of one branch to check the other branches. So each branch has certain checks and balances over the other branches. So that essentially in order to get anything done, if you want to make change, you have to win at every one of those checks and there's dozens of them. If you don't want change, all you have to do is win once and you block the bill from ever passing Congress. Or if the bill passes, you get the president to veto it. Or if the president signs it or the veto is overridden, you can get the courts to strike it down. Right. So all through our system are these roadblocks and impediments that constrain political democracy and prevent economic democracy. They prevent 
any other kind of economic system from emerging to replace capitalism. So when the framers designed this system, they also designed it so that it appears as if Article One, which sets up Congress, where Congress has the most powers, it says in Article One in great detail what each house can do and can't do. Article Two is much shorter. It doesn't give a lot of power to the president and almost nothing to the vice president. There's almost nothing for the vice president to do. And then there's almost nothing in Article Three, which is the federal courts. And there's no judicial review there. There's no ability to say whether something the other branches are doing or the states is constitutional or not. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people read this and say, well, that means Congress is the most powerful branch. But here's the rub. Article 2 and Article 3 say what they can do, and it's not very much, but they don't say what they can't do. Mm. Whereas Article 1 says Congress may not do this, 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 and this. And over time, we've had a lot of power-hungry and clever presidents and vice presidents. We've had, from the beginning, a Supreme Court that thought it lacked power. And with John Marshall, one of the framers who becomes the second Supreme Court Chief Justice, he asserts the power of judicial review, most famously in the 1803 Marbury versus Madison case. Mm. And that's still there over two centuries later. And so what you have is from the beginning, to get back to Washington's last speech, it's from the beginning Washington uses this lack of clarity, this lack of specificity about what they can't do to essentially claim things that the president can do that are nowhere in the Constitution. And the origin of this actually lies in suppressing those threats that I talked about earlier that come from below. Washington used this, this ambiguity essentially to build the army up in order to suppress Native American resistance and carry out these genocidal attacks on Native Americans in order to expand into those lands. He also used the war powers essentially to put down organized resistance against new federal taxes that Hamilton got Congress to approve in order to finance his economic policies I talked about earlier. Mm. Now, there's some personal interests involved. I don't think that's the main motivation, but Washington was one of the biggest landowners in the state of Pennsylvania where the Whiskey Rebellion uh, was suppressed. And so from the very beginning, Washington realizes, I'm under a lot of pressure to use my power as president. In fact, he had been invited to just come on at the end of the revolution as a lifetime king. And he famously turned down the offer, went back to his slave plantation. But he, he realized, to his credit, by the end of his presidency, that these powers are very enticing. And somebody will find themselves because of situations or because of the interests or the perspective of the person in office and those they surround themselves with as their advisors, that they can deploy those powers and, as a result, tip the balance so that the president becomes much more powerful. And so I would argue that it's not something that happens with uh, Franklin Roosevelt or Nixon, as most historians argue. I think it happens right away. Mm. It happens under the Washington administration, that the president becomes the most powerful branch in our system. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how it's the kind of, I think you use the phrase, the sort of the interstices of the law, where there's that kind of negative space almost that then the, that branch of government seems to just fill, even if on the basis of like temporary powers, and they, they just never give them back. Um, you kind of enumerate a few of the, the ways in which 
presidential sort of discretionary powers have been used, you know, bank bailouts in 2008, national emergency fund appropriation, waging wars often secret, uh, and so on. Um, maybe let's talk a bit more about the judiciary. And you mentioned judicial review as something that, again, was not enumerated in the Constitution as a, as a power of the federal courts, but which has profound consequences today, right? The overturning of Roe versus Wade is something that we might want to talk about. Uh, the kind of stripping of the powers of the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, yeah, could you could you talk a little bit about judicial review and, and the power of the Supreme Court in some of the negative ways that we're still seeing that impact today? Yeah, so there's that negative space at work. And when Marshall gets this case uh, dealing with an issue of somebody who didn't get his judicial appointment, he writes the ruling in such a way that he says a law passed by Congress that gave the court power was actually a violation of the Constitution because you can't change the powers of the Constitution without amending the Constitution. And so by striking down that part of the Judiciary Act, he actually claims that the courts have this power to decide whether or not a law or another action by the federal government of the states are constitutional or not. And by doing that, he essentially created this immense power that both the parties embrace and are unwilling to ever stop using. And we refer to this as a judicial review in, in the United States, and most countries don't really have it, or they limit it to a particular constitutional court, or they limit who can file cases of judicial review. Not so in our system. Every federal court can decide cases on constitutionality. Anybody can bring the case. And so this really is one of the most potent checks that's not in the Constitution. This was mm. designed by somebody who, at the Constitutional Convention, never stimulated the discussion. In fact, a little over a century ago, uh, there was a historian who went back and looked at, he wrote a whole book about whether or not the framers ever intended to give the courts this power. And he found that they barely even discussed it. They just assumed that it would have it. And so Marshall, once he gets into that position, just kind of activates it in that case. And the consequences of judicial review have been one of the most destructive types of minority checks in American history, because often there are attempts by the states or by the Congress uh, to address a deep injustice. Hmm. And then it gets to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, rules in favor of uh, minority interests, often property interests. And you mentioned some of the classic examples. Um, we could also add in there as well a uh, Supreme Court ruling uh, to essentially to make unions illegal, to allow the imprisonment of labor organizers, uh, the incarceration of over 100,000 Japanese Americans just under suspicion that they might betray the United States during World War II. The list is long. And the irony is that we often hear, particularly from political liberals in the United States, that the best way to address an injustice is to file a lawsuit. And with the expectation that it'll make it through the federal courts and eventually we'll get a ruling using judicial review that will overturn that injustice. But if that ever happens, let's not forget that the courts can also change their mind. And I think that the Roe v. Wade case, the Mississippi Dobbs case, which is, deals with a, an abortion clinic in Mississippi, is a good example where the court can reverse itself. Mm -hmm. And while a lot of people are becoming aware of that, one of the things that we need to stay focused on is that 
where sometimes we do win in judicial review cases, most of the time we lose, and we lose badly. Essentially, what it's done is it's made the Supreme Court into a kind of third chamber of the legislature where it can change laws that it doesn't like, where it can veto uh, laws that it doesn't like after they've already become laws. And so regardless of the efforts of the organized majority, ultimately the final place where elite interests can be served is after years of effort of working its way through the courts, it can use the Supreme Court to strike down and overturn that will of the majority. And what the Supreme Court's actions in the Dobbs case is demonstrating to a lot of people today is that our system doesn't work according to this other mythological principle that we learn as children, that the majority rules. We're learning in a very vivid way that our system is designed for minority rule because there are so many minority checks in our system that ultimately those who are in the minority can again and again defeat what the majority wants, regardless of whether they have the numbers or not. Mm. That really creates all kinds of catastrophic consequences, not only for the United States, but I think for the entire world, that our system is designed in this way. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you kind of outlined quite clearly why why it matters outside of the US, why people should care about the system as it is. Um, I mean, one thing that you've mentioned already is that the rare instances where there has been progressive change through the political system, it's come from this sort of external pressure, this pressure from below. But then towards the end of the book, you also quote Howard Zinn, who said that the Constitution is of minor importance compared to the actions citizens take, especially when those actions are joined uh, in social movements. So I was wondering how you interpret that kind of statement and to what extent that might jar or gel, I guess, with the analysis that you make in the book. Is the Constitution irrelevant in the face of powerful social movements or do we need to be thinking about amending or chucking out altogether uh, the Constitution? Yeah, you know, Howard Zinn was an incredible influence for me, and I'm a huge fan of him. I gave my daughter the graphic novel version of it before she was even 10. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I have great admiration for Howard Zinn. But I think on this point, he's wrong. I think the Constitution is of great consequences, because when we play by the rules of the system, sometimes he's right. We do win, but we only win in the short term. Uh, Most of the changes that have happened in the United States, starting with the Bill of Rights, which I talked about earlier, happened when people were so well organized that they were able to put leverage and pressure through the threat of disruption on the elites and force them to concede some of what we wanted. But that doesn't happen too often. And right now we're going on a half a century where we have not been strong enough to extract any concessions. But the problem is that those concessions over time get watered down, and they're killed by the death by a thousand cuts. Slowly, slowly, they're eroded. That's what happened with Roe v. Wade. A lot of people don't realize that Dobbs wasn't the death of Roe. There were several Supreme Court rulings in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s that already gutted much of it, so that in some states, women didn't even really have an access to an abortion, except in one clinic. Um, One state, the only clinic was on a Native American reservation. So... In the long term, if we play by the rules of the system, we might get changes every once in a while, but we'll never be able to change the economic system. 
And that, I think, is what's missing from a lot of this analysis. And Howard Zinn, who is deeply influenced by anarchism, didn't really focus on this question, which is, can we change the economic system? And I don't think we can. The way that the system is designed is that ultimately any threats to the rule of property will be defeated. For example, when we did get a legal right to unionize and organize under the Labor, National Labor Relations Act, after several previous laws gave parts of that, it created all kinds of limits and structures and bureaucratic roadblocks that really makes it impossible for the organized working class to take over the economic system and abolish property, for example. Due process rights for property, uh, just compensation for property in the Bill of Rights would require that property owners be compensated if we were to, say, expropriate their property. So property is well protected in the Constitution, and those minority checks give the property elites plenty of opportunities to essentially water down, defeat, or prevent any attempts to change the economic system. So I like to tell my students that, you know, even if Bernie Sanders gets elected, he wouldn't be able to abolish property. And he's actually not that kind of socialist. But assuming that he did, he wouldn't be able to because the Constitution would prevent that from happening. And so I think ultimately I conclude in the book that we really have to go around the Constitution and really take a page from the framers' strategy. And if we want to fix the system, we have several options. I think we could organize a new constitutional writing process, kind of like what's going on in Chile right now, really this exciting constitutional revision process, and start from the bottom up and create uh, many community efforts to design what a new system that would allow for political governance and the kind of economic system that serves human needs to be designed from the bottom up, or forget about the constitutional writing process altogether. And in the future, next time there is a strike wave, when workers start taking over their workplaces, is to design systems of self-governance around control of the economic system to serve human needs. And then that could become the governance system, how we produce and distribute the things that we all need is our system of governance. So I think there's a couple of options there. And that's how I conclude the book talking through a little bit about how we might get beyond the Constitution. Mm, absolutely. Well, I think it might be a good place to leave it there. I don't want people to feel completely satisfied with this. I want them to go and read the book and <laughs> think about these questions a bit more because it, it really is very engaging. A big thank you to Robert Ovetz for joining us on today's show. His new book, We the Elites, Why the US Constitution Serves the Few, is out in September. You can pre-order it now from plutobooks.com and you just need to use the coupon podcast at the checkout to get 50% off. If you've enjoyed our discussion today, then don't forget to like, share and subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be sharing our next episode of Radicals in Conversation in-house later this month and then returning again with our regular panel show in September. So until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.